Welcome. You are listening to a podcast brought to you by the Center of International Studies and Diplomacy, a branch of SOAS Radio. Enjoy the show. In this talk, David Unger, adjunct professor at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies at Bologna, delves into the complexities of the U.S. election, touching on its immediate causes, identity politics, and the effects it will have in different parts of the globe. This talk was recorded on November 11th, 2016. Hello, good morning. We're all impressed that we're all here. <laughs> uh, it's a great pleasure to be able to introduce uh, Professor David Unger, uh, who I guess I've known since the 1990s when, reasons best known to himself, he would occasionally buy me lunch in New York to talk about nuclear weapons. It was free. <laughs> yeah, you weren't paying either. That's right. <laughs> um, uh, for uh, between 1977 and 2008, David uh, worked at the New York Times, uh, writing uh, the uh, foreign policy editorials. Uh, he told me that at one point he had to write them for 42 straight days, all by himself. At which point he started screaming for help. Uh, anyway, his CV says that he wrote some 3,000 of them over those years, and as you can imagine. Um, there are an awful lot of people in, in the United States and outside the United States who want to influence uh, what the New York Times might say about foreign policy. So uh, as a result, of course, uh, an awful lot of people came to bang on his door and talk to him about their points of view. Um, and therefore, he gives us a, a, a huge uh, amount of uh, what a British politician called hinterland, a huge amount of resource and background on American foreign policy Hello, everybody. Um, I look forward to this more informal session than we're going to have yesterday afternoon and to your questions. Last week, I was uh, in Italy talking to rows upon rows of Italian Army and Air Force uh, people in uniform. And uh, they, they didn't ask a question because their commander-in-chief was sitting right there. And they didn't want to betray either that they hadn't quite gotten the English or hadn't quite been able to phrase the question in English, or they might have asked a wrong question, but we won't have any of that there, and don't be intimidated by anything Dan says, it's just me here, right? okay. and uh, we're not going to, yes, I have this, I go back to 1977 doing this stuff, but we're mostly here to talk not about the past, but about the present and the future. We have to talk a little bit about the past, because there's no understanding what happened in the American election, and we don't completely understand it yet. I don't mean who won, but why they won, uh, without understanding that it is a delayed reaction to maybe three decades of policy failure by the ruling elites. Neoliberal economics at home, failed wars over ambitious uh, foreign policy products abroad. There's no crisis that happened particularly in 2015 or 2016 that you can point to. As I say, it's a delayed reaction that in the last U.S. election around 2012, okay, there had been the financial crash. The numbers look good, even if people weren't feeling good. People still believed there would be some kind of normal recovery, that there would be, uh, that, that mobility would be upward, not downward, that safety nets would be restored, that income would rise. Over the last quadrennium, they've seen uh, that the, the statistics kept looking better and their lives didn't. And there was a massive fall off of faith. And that in the primaries in both parties, people didn't want, they didn't go for the standard prescriptions. 
I mean, both parties, major parties there, like major parties here in the UK, have the standard list of things that they read off, and they try to connect it to voters' actual concerns. I think the, the, the Brexit vote tells you that they were oblivious to voters' actual concerns or, or to 52% of the voters' actual concerns, that neither um, Cameron's uh, Tories or, or Miliband's Labour, as they then were, um, or Corbyn's Labour it was by then, understood what their constituents were really aggrieved about. Donald Trump, whatever else you want to say about him, grasped that. He grasped the feeling in the land. He grasped the opportunity he had to play for that feeling in the land and build a political constituency which was his own, which was not the Republican Party's, but which sort of took over the Republican Party in a way. Now that he's the victor, it's sorting out, as Tung Dan on the way over here, there are three constituencies. There are the voters that put Trump in the White House, there are the Republican establishment politicians that want to take advantage of that for their agenda. I, I said there were three, and I'm sure there are three. Um, but it's a question of Trump has to be careful not to lose the people who voted for them. Of course, people are betrayed after elections. It's the nature of the system. But it's very much in his personal interest to keep alive Trump followers who are not normal Republicans, who the Republican, who the Gingriches and the uh, McConnells and the Ryans don't think they can control, but think they need Trump to control. In other words, he needs to deliver now on some of his populist promises, uh, just as we see that Theresa May thinking she needs to do, but he, he needs to actually do it. Um, we talk about Trump's victory. Of course, Hillary Clinton got two million more votes. Interesting. Um, Trump kept saying the election would be rigged, and in a funny kind of way, he was right. It was rigged by what we've had all along, the Electoral College, which was fixable all along. When the Democrats came in with Obama in 2008, they had good majorities in both houses of Congress. They had the White House. They could have begun a process of Electoral College reform. After all, it was just eight years earlier that Bush had taken the presidency away from Gore, losing the popular vote in the Electoral College. Some states, two states, allow the state electors to be divided by district, not winner-take-all for the whole state. I mention that option not because it's politically pure or clean, but because it's doable without a constitutional amendment. Constitutional amendments are very hard in America. They need ratification by three-quarters of the states. The Equal Rights Amendment never went through. It would have taken a long time. There could have been some adjustment. There could be some adjustment now, but there won't be because the Republicans have the majority. They're not interested. They've twice been the beneficiary of the present system. In talking about the mechanics of the election, um, it's reasonable to ask, would Bernie Sanders have won? And we don't really know. Uh, obviously, we don't really know. Because we don't, we, we don't know what kind of, how the Republicans and Trump would have portrayed Sanders, what they would have thrown at him, and how good he would have been at responding to that. What they threw at Hillary was her history, and she was not very good at responding to that. What Sanders showed in the primary is that when he was attacked for who he was or his history, he was able to bring the conversation back to the social justice issues, which were his strongest. He was able to put forward 
a positive image, vote for me and things will change for the better. Clinton's campaign was essentially don't vote for me and you get Trump. But no, no positive promise of voting for her. But as long as we have this electoral college system and it's by states, Bernie Sanders might have gotten more votes, but he might have lost too. Two states that Sanders beat Clinton in the primary uh, were Michigan and Wisconsin. Clinton lost them by about one percentage point in the election, so the argument goes there. Yet, together, there are 26 electoral votes, which wouldn't have done the margin. He would also have had to gotten our states of Ohio and Pennsylvania, where he lost in the primary to Hillary Clinton. So we're, we're sort of lost in the realms of speculation. But it's, it's not an idle question, because the Democrats, having lost with the model of the status quo, with experience, with conventional liberalism, with the Clinton dynasty has to think about where it wants to go, not just four years from now, but two years from now, in trying to reclaim a legislative majority and force its agenda on Trump. Uh, if you look at the, at the two coalitions, I would call them the rainbow and orphans of the rainbow. Okay? The Democrats have a rainbow coalition. It's a term that Jesse Jackson uh, coined in the mid-'80s. And it's essentially, here's the dynamic of the thing. The New Deal coalition of Franklin Roosevelt through John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson was based on labor unions, was based on the AFL-CIO, both as a vote-getting operation and as a funding operation. With the deindustrialization and globalization of the American economy, that wasn't there anymore in numbers. The, the percentage of people in unions shrunk by more than half. The percentage of people in manufacturing shrunk by more than half. That's no shock to us. We see it around us here as well. Okay. And like labor, the Democrats went shopping for a new base. And they went for a third-way base, for a striver's base, for a socially liberal Wall Street base. Okay. But they also, the Democrats have a good history, not a wonderful history, but a good history of delivering for identifiable groups in the population, whether we're talking about Afro-Americans, Latinos, women, gays, transgender, whatever. You add them up, and as Obama showed for the first time, actually, in 2008, for the first time, we saw that you could put together a rainbow majority, an electoral majority of identity politics of rainbow groups. All right. Trump, on the other hand, his constituency are the orphans of the rainbow. And the orphans of the rainbow are, in shorthand, the white male working class. Okay? You can say, okay, racist white male working class don't want to get with feminism or anything else like that. But it's also a constituency by subtraction, which is to say since the whole neoliberal project that both parties have produced have caused real incomes to stagnate at best, have caused precarity, have caused the loss of social benefits, have caused downward mobility. All right. To that general mix for working people and petty bourgeois people, the Democrats have sprinkled favors on identity groups, gays in the military, uh, minority appointments, whatever, um, glass ceiling. Minority groups, which they're funding based on Wall Street, said, okay, this is nowhere near as expensive as raising the minimum wage, social justice, better trade agreements. We'll go with that if it keeps people voting for you and keeps the regime in power, all right? 
sort of had something for everybody except the orphans of the rainbow, since white male working class is not an identifiable minority group, although it too is a minority if you do the math. They got, they got nothing from the democratic formula. So they gravitate, they become the Reagan Democrats, they become the, the Trump constituency. They don't go away. Trump, Trump is, is in a way, you know, Dr. Faust is here. Um, he's made a deal, a deal which made him, gave him independence from the Republican Party and its program, allowed him to stand up to the Paul Ryans and the McConnells and the others and say, they're following me, they're not following you. I can junk this part of your standard program which does nothing for them. Okay, I'll come around to being bad on reproductive rights and tax cuts for the rich, but that's not really who I am. I'm about infrastructure spending. I'm about things that will keep my constituency happy and keep me being able to talk to you, the Republicans, from a more dominant position. Now they're trying to capture him. It was just announced yesterday that the national chairman of the Republican Party, a person nobody's ever heard of by the name of Rance Priebus, is going to be White House Chief of Staff. All right, so that's a marriage. I have to say that the, the, the Trump, the Democrats, like Labor, talk about being a big tent. It's a pretty big tent on the Republican side, too, because in the course of the campaign, the Trump campaign enabled alt-right groups like the Ku Klux Klan and other um, nasty people. Uh, and gave them little franchises to hang out. Not maybe Republican Party, but Trump campaign, real Donald Trump, internet franchises. So the question is, can he keep his base by going to his populist program and ignoring the, the business roundtable Republicans? Can he expand his base by ditching the alt-right and allowing conservative people who don't like the Klan and don't like anti-Semitic groups to come back into his coalition. Will he? Alt-right gave him a winning margin. Maybe he doesn't want to dispense with a winning margin, but there's more votes to get by ditching them. And ditching them, unlike ditching his white working class offerings of the rainbow, wouldn't cost him, wouldn't bother him. It's not who Donald Trump particularly was as a businessman. Okay. Um, Before we look at the foreign policy consequences of Trump, and of course we're just speculating because the man has no coherent global strategy, no foreign policy experience, no government experience, has made a lot of um, exciting comments, but you can't weave them together into a philosophy. We'll know more over the next few weeks as he makes his national security appointments. Before we get to it, let's talk about what he's inheriting, what Obama is leaving. And, you know, when we talk about Obama, we talk about the Iran nuclear agreement, We talk about not intervening with boots on the ground in Syria. Uh, We're talking about the recognition of Cuba, all important points. We're talking about lofty promises never kept on proliferation of nuclear weapons. We're talking about promises signed twice on climate but not yet kept, maybe not keepable in the American political system. But what I want to talk about is solvency insolvency. This This is a term of art that you may be familiar with. It goes back in the American parlance to the famous columnist Walter Lippmann when the Cold War began. And when Walter Lippmann read about the Truman Doctrine, heard the President of the United States saying, it shall be the policy of the United States to to support free peoples everywhere, he almost fell over in his chair. Not that he didn't like free people or didn't like everywhere. He just had a certain awareness that even 
after World War II, when the United States was the strongest power standing, it had finite resources, and everywhere would ultimately mean nowhere, as was proven by Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, and many, many adventures. Obama, coming in after the most recent debacle, the Iraq War, said, saw that the United States was overextended. It was in in insolvency. It was not only in fiscal insolvency because of its overseas posture, it was in strategic insolvency. Hence his idea of pivot to the Pacific. Because his specific answer to insolvency is, look, I'm left with 160, I come in with 160,000 troops in Iraq, 33,000 in Afghanistan, And the People's Republic of China knows full well that whatever they want to do in the East or South China Sea, I can't be there because I'm tied down here. Granted, he went up in his first year to 100,000 in Afghanistan. Granted, he decided to do Libya. Granted, he extended drone warfare to five new countries. And he's at least proxy involved in Yemen. We're not sure how involved he might be in Yemen or Somalia at the moment. Yet, in terms of solvency, in terms of strategic bank account, very important that the sum total of U.S. troops back in Iraq and Afghanistan is under 20,000, not 200,000, 20,000. Leave some space left. Personnel, although, uh, treats, uh, although U.S. troops don't live regally, is 40 or 50% of U.S. military costs. When you look at after-combat care for post-traumatic stress disorder, when you look at health insurance, when you look at other personnel costs, it's a driver. And since procurement, the buying of big weapons, is between the lobbyists and the politicians and will happen anyway, the most cuttable is the size of personnel. And that's what Obama has tried to do. And Obama's drone warfare, just like, which none of us remember, Dwight Eisenhower's new look defense, which said, I'm not going to do any more careers, um, uh, Koreas. I'm going to do it all with nukes and spooks. Massive retaliation, deterrent nuclear threat, CIA coups, Iran and Afghanistan. Nasty, but cheaper. All right? Back to solvency. Obama spent most of his eight years trying to do this pivot, and while he reduced expenditure, we could say, in the Middle East, barely holding the line on, on Syria and ISIS, um, which, was, which line was going to go if Clinton had went anyway because she was pledged to do more there. Um, not enough to pivot to the Pacific. Interestingly, U.S. naval deployments did pivot to the Pacific. Why? ISIS doesn't have a navy, right? You don't use warships for that kind of stuff. Uh, but not the ground forces, not the budget, not the rest of it. So that's, that's where Obama leaves it and Trump comes in. What's he going to do? easier to know what he's going to do domestically, because that's really what he talks about, what he won by. He's, he identified his policy as America first, which caused the liberal establishment to uh, cringe, because it brought to mind, I suppose I should say, infamous organization which existed in America between 1940 and 1941. Very brief life. Founded early 1940, dissolved Pearl Harbor, December of 41. In that life, went through a total personality change. All right? It was, although the image that we receive from history is a bunch of 
nasty, anti-Semitic, Nazi-loving isolationists like Charles Lindbergh and Joseph P. Kennedy. It was actually founded at Yale Law School by a bunch of law students who later went on to internationalist careers, famous internationalist careers, including President Gerald Ford, not yet president, including Chester Bowles, who was a a Kennedy-Johnson-era diplomat, assistant secretary of state, ambassador to India, and the rest of it. So it wasn't founded by isolationists. It was founded by progressives, in fact, who, in, in the progressive mode of the late 30s, early 40s, reached the conclusion that the First World War had not made the world safe for democracy, but had made the world unsafe for liberal government, had spawned totalitarianism and depression, and they didn't want to go through it again, and had not been necessary for the security of the United States. So they expressed this sentiment. I I would even analogize them to the anti-war protesters against Vietnam in the 60s. It's really where they came from, which spawned a broad left-right coalition, including Joseph Kennedy and Charles Lindbergh, to be sure, also including the Communist Party and the Popular Front. Why? Because this is the period of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, right? June of 41, Nazi Germany invades the Soviet Union, Communist Party orders all of its followers and friends out of America first, and from that period for its last six months, it becomes a rump right-wing organization, which Franklin Roosevelt used very effectively to demonize as he made his case for intervention to save Britain uh, in, in the fall of 1941, when the U.S. was conducting undeclared naval warfare in the North Atlantic, trying to provoke Germany into an incident that would allow Roosevelt to vote the U.S. in the war. Okay, I promise not to go back. I've gone very far back. Uh, But so this is important, because when Trump said America first, not being uh, a student of diplomacy or foreign policy history, he didn't mean that. He meant literally the meanings of the word. He meant a nationalist, a more nationalist foreign policy, a less globalist foreign policy. He thought correctly, that the free trade agreements, the series of free trade agreements, NAFTA, TTP, TTIP, etc., were not good deals. They were good deals. The economists I work with at SAIS in Bologna say, well, look, they're very good deals for the United States because look at GDP, look at corporate profits. They're just not very good deals for the voters of the United States, the people who voted for Trump because they lost their jobs because of outsourcing. Agreements which took the political risk out of outsourcing were not putting America first for those voters, and Trump was able to capitalize on that. All right. Unfortunately, um, the America he wants to put first is not the diverse America which is. The man's 70 years old. Nothing wrong. I'll be 70 myself soon, so nothing wrong with being 70 years old. But he lives in a world of the 1950s. Hillary Clinton probably lived in a world of the 1990s, Donald Trump in the 1950s. So we had a choice of which impossible past we were going to try and recreate in this election. He goes back to the, to the world of madmen, the world of white, male, unquestioned supremacy through the threat of force, literally. Uh, not good news on issues of Black Lives Matter. Not good news on issues of harassment by the police, of racial tensions at home, on immigration, on refugees. Um, The United States was already in a kind of shameful position on refugees for a globalist power that has had a hand in stirring many of the conflicts that spawn refugees 
It was taking 70,000, which Obama promised to raise, to 100,000. This is a country that's been a country of, of immigration all its life, that has over 300 million people. Look at Merkel. Look at a million people in Austria and Germany. Look at 70,000 to 100,000 in the United States. Not quite doing its share. Talking up a storm, shaming other people, feeding the wars that produce refugees, not doing its share. That's going to go down. That's going to be shut down. Uh, and I don't know how that can be stopped. Although, of course, the history of the next two and four years in America will not be written, need not be written only by Donald Trump and the Republicans. Civil society gets a say if it knows how to mobilize itself. It is, after all, represents 60 million voters voted against him, 58 million voters voted for him, and 60 million wisely concluded not to vote at all. So he doesn't doesn't automatically get his way. Um, These issues are all very abstract on the ground. The potential for violence is high. All right. I personally come from a multiracial family or have a multiracial family, and uh, we're all scared. We're all scared about what's going to happen. Not that we were unscared before Election Day, but we're more scared after Election Day. We have to see who he's going to put in his cabinet, and we can't be... Even that won't tell us too much because... um, some presidents have, Obama included, put Hillary Clinton in the, in the cabinet to get her out of domestic politics. Some people, uh, George W. Bush put Colin Powell in as Secretary of State to contain his popularity and not let him have an independent voice. So those cabinet positions could be giveaways to the Republican establishment while Trump plans to live to rule elsewhere. Or they could be actual indicators of the man who doesn't have an agriculture policy, doesn't have a housing policy, doesn't have a monetary policy, intends to go in these areas by picking people with a track record, and then we'll have to see. The Supreme Court doesn't look good, we know. Uh, We had a right-wing Supreme Court until Antonin Scalia died. We have a stalemated Supreme Court now. There's the one vacant seat. It will undoubtedly be filled to the right, but probably for political reasons, not as far right as Scalia. So in the first instance that, but you look at other justices, you look at Ginsburg, who's in her 80s, they're all aging. Um, The next presidential term could see as many as four new appointments if the Republicans keep their majority in the Senate, if Trump keeps his popularity in the land, and if the Democrats play softball while the Republicans play hardball, could be a generation of very conservative court. But we really don't... Trump made some promises, um, particularly on reproductive rights, but we don't know on other important issues that come before the courts, including the rights of defendants in trials, uh, where it's going to go. I I remind you that a right-wing court stopped George W. Bush on Guantanamo and habeas corpus and made him at least get new laws passed to do the nasty things he wanted to do. Um, fiscal and monis- monetary policy um, look for the end of quantitative easing in the United States uh, paradoxically the Democrats who have embraced Keynesianism as an ideology have been p- politically afraid to use it in terms of big fiscal stimulus they feel that the Republicans would call them names All right. even when Obama had strong majorities in his first two years he was told by Larry Summers go no further than this on the stimulus, and most economists would agree it wasn't far enough to do the job. All right? So we went to monetary policy. We went to quantitative easing. We went to Bernanke. We went to, to Yellen. 
Um, Trump has the confidence and the politics to go for big-time fiscal stimulus, both by cutting taxes for the rich again and by spending probably on infrastructure. If you want to look for an unknown quantity, President Trump looking to consolidate his base among his voters by creating jobs and good economic numbers, and a Congress agrees that infrastructure is not, not a bad ideology because it makes exports more competitive, it makes industry more profitable. It's essentially a state subsidy to private industry, after all, by reducing its transportation costs. That's, that's what I would expect to go. Um, politically, and I'm just speculating here, this will tell the voters, look, Reagan went with big-time fiscal stimulus, and it brought unemployment down, and it brought the Reagan prosperity, bubblish though it was. Trump is doing it too. Democrats, more stagnation. So working class voter, we know, we know what, what works. Tax cuts work, all right? Republicans have the pro-working class economics. We'll vote for those guys again, unless we don't like them on other issues. That's, that's the way I think it's going to go, but we'll see. Um, obviously, if there's a fiscal deficit and monetary restraint, it will have an effect on the exchange rate of the dollar. Um, therefore, the exchange rate of the pound and the euro and the yen and the rest of it. Which effect, we don't really know. depends on the balance between fiscal and monetary and what the investment community, the bondholders, the currency traders think will be effective. If they think, as I think, <clears throat> that fiscal stimulus will generate the revenues to start paying for itself and do a virtuous cycle, it will probably strengthen the dollar. But we can only speculate at this point. Free trade agreements, they're all dead. They're all dead. Not, uh, the TTIP was pronounced dead this week. TTP was pronounced dead this week. NAFTA is existing like any treaty. It has an exit clause. All Trump has to do is give notice under that clause. In six months, we're out. It's not Article 50 here. It's, it's a negotiation. It's what Cameron tried to do. It says, we, we announced that we're out in six months unless we get the changes we want. All right? Whether these are changes that Mexico and Canada want to grant has to await the content. It's in Mexico's interest and Canada's interest to keep the agreements alive, but not to accept changes which are extremely adverse to them. It's so obvious it doesn't need to be said, but I've said it anyway. Um, looking region by region, so we can get on to the questions fairly soon. We started with NAFTA, so let's look at Latin America first. Um, obviously, that Mexico will be, will be the focal point, not just because of revisions of NAFTA, but because of the wall. Will it be a six-inch wall? Will it be a 60-foot wall? There's a wall over half the border. Will the new wall be more effective? I'm sure for political reasons a wall will be built. I'm not sure what kind of wall it's going to be. The real place where immigration enforcement happens is in the size of the enforcement force, and that costs a lot of money. And other corporate interests will be competing for that same money. So it would take something, it would, to, to the, the, the key agency is now called picturesquely ICE, right? I-C-E, the Border Patrol Agency. That budget would have to go up five, ten times to make a dent. Also, if 
I should have started with this, that 11 to 14 million illegals now in the United States are by definition illegal, so no law needs to be passed to make them more illegal. It is in the discretion of the executive branch what to do about this massive illegality. Discretion on enforcement. 100% enforcement would cost more money than the political system wants to pay in taxes. It would also cause more pain for employers in agribusiness and other fields that rely on that illegal labor, which is, can be off the books, which can be paid sub-minimum wage and the rest of it. So the degree of enforcement is the issue. Trump will want to keep happy those voters who don't like what they see around them in their previously um, all-white communities. The, the res- what, what we see around us here, right? Okay, The restaurants, the stores, the language, the rest of it. They don't like it. He wants to satisfy them, at least in their rural pockets, where we're mostly talking about migrant seasonal agricultural labor, not <clears throat> the great agricultural belts of the Rio Grande Valley and the Central Valley of California, which have been Hispanized for a long time, and everybody's used to seeing it. It's the new, it's the towns in the Rust Belt with very little lively internal economy which have been um, attracting immigrants, changing the place. That's where enforcement would be politically cheapest if he wanted to do it. So we'll see what he does there. Um, Colombia, well, Cuba, that's interesting too. What Obama did, which was ended 55 years of the United States shooting itself in the foot with an ineffective embargo, which visibly did not dent the Castro's rule, which was its supposed purpose, up to the point where American business could see that Cuba was opening up, not because Fidel's in his late 80s, not because Raul has more liberalized economic views, but because first the Soviet subsidy ended, then with oil prices the Venezuelan subsidy ended. At that point, Cuba needed infusions of investment and was willing to meet the terms people were asking. And Europe like Canada, was rushing in. So it became good business for the United States to help American companies rush in. But all Obama could do was state-to-state open the normalization door. The sanctions, unlike any other, well, unlike most other sanctions in the United States, are not executive branch enforcement under the Trading with the Enemies Act, but are a special piece of statutory legislation that... Congresses in the Clinton, the first Clinton era, passed to make sure the president couldn't give relief. So it will be up to Congress to ease the sanctions to let American businesses compete more effectively with European businesses. The Republicans have historically not liked that. Florida is a swing state. It swung to Trump this time. Its narrow margins depend on old generation Cubans in the Miami area. Republicans don't want to alienate that. Trump's in what business? He's in the real estate and hotel business. I would think his own business experience and instincts would want to rush in, like Godfather 2, was it 2? It was 2, yeah. Open those casinos again. It's a casino guy. So we'll see how that plays out. Colombia. Peace was dead. Peace is alive again. They signed a new agreement this week. What's different is that under Obama, under George W. Bush, 
under Bill Clinton, the United States had a heavy, heavy pacification presence in Colombia, supporting the government in Bogota. All right? That's going to end. Under America first, that does not interest Donald Trump or his voters. Colombia is going to be on its own. Maybe that's why they reached a new peace agreement. We'll see how it works out. We'll see if it passes. Venezuela, um, I would say the last three American governments to different degrees have been trying to overthrow um, the Chavez and post-Chavez regimes in Venezuela. I don't think that interests Donald Trump. I think America first doesn't really care who runs Venezuela. They're Venezuelans, after all. What does he care about Venezuelans, right? Um, Moving on from that cheery picture of the Western Hemisphere to our own hemisphere, as I said, TTIP is dead. Next question, NATO, right? Donald Trump doesn't think NATO is worth the cost, doesn't think other countries are contributing their share. To one way of thinking, he's right. NATO is a construct of the late 1940s, early 1950s to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, the Germans down. None of that makes particular... Russians out may still have some resonance today, but the rest of it doesn't make particular sense. Uh, does not... NATO was formed at a time when there was the Europe of the six and it was a free trade area only. Not coexisting with a, albeit Brexit approaching, shrinking, possibly in crisis European <laughs> Union. Nevertheless, there is now a European-only organization with no barrier to it picking up some of the security duties. If Trump is true to what he says he's going to do, he's going to present... I don't think he understands the economics, frankly. I don't think he understands the offset payments that Germany is making offset the cost of the U.S. troops stationed in Germany. Same for Japan. Um, but if, he, if, he, if he's going to go down this path, What's going to happen de facto with or without NATO is that with that, with Brexit, with the possible election of Marine Le Pen in France next year, Germany is going to be the security guarantor of Europe. It's going to be the security player. Germany is going to take over the negotiations, hard power, soft power dialogue with Putin and Russia and Erdogan for that matter. Those, those will be the three powers of continental Europe in a Trump world. Um, Africa, we could talk about that in slightly less than one minute because Donald Trump has never had a thought about Africa and is not likely to. Um, except the part of Africa that's part of the Middle East, obviously. North Africa, Egypt, and the rest of it. Um, we'll hear no human rights criticisms from a Trump administration at home or abroad. We'll hear no talk of international law and violations of international law. We'll hear no talk about the nuclear non-proliferation treaty or non-proliferation policies. In fact, he said the more the merrier. Japan, South Korea, great. If they pay for it, I don't. Uh, we see no action on the Paris Climate Accords. In fact, he's put people in charge of the environment who are climate science deniers. Um, I'm circling around the Middle East. More specifically... Uh, he tells us he's going to defeat ISIS in, what was it, 48 hours or two weeks? Whatever. Um, believe me, he said. Okay. Well, um, the only way I can believe him if his plan is to get together with Putin and Assad rather than what we see now, which is a three-cornered, stalemated fight, 
to unite all the anti-ISIS forces, unpalatable as they may be to many Syrians and many Americans for that matter. Putin, Assad. Well, you know, if you look at how things are done in the real world, if you look at how the Iranian nuclear deal was done, and I'll get to that in a moment, things are done by contact groups. There are outside powers who may be under the United Nations Charter, under pure Westphalian theory, shouldn't meddle with the affairs of a sovereign state, but they're going to. They have an interest in outcomes. Russia famously has its only military base outside the Soviet Union in Syria. Um, it has its prestige on the line. Iran, as a Shiite power, would not like to see a Salafist Sunni takeover of Syria and a persecution of non-Sunnis, right? um, et cetera, et cetera. Saudi Arabia has an interest, surely. Um, Israel has a border interest. The only way you get from endless escalating deadly war to negotiated peace is either by the total victory of one side, which can't happen if all sides have great power backers, or by a dirty, ugly negotiated deal where everybody sits down and says, okay, what's the one thing you really have to have? And concedes to the others the one thing they really have to have. Obama could see this. He could not figure out a way in American politics to make the American electorate swallow Putin saying what he absolutely had to have, Assad saying what he did. The Israelis are not hard in American politics, okay, but Putin, Assad, the Iranians are hard. And he'd, he'd, he'd uh, already spent the Iranian card on the Iranian nuclear deal. So that was hard to do. Trump, with the normal self-confidence of a blustering Republican, won't be inhibited by that. He'll say, see, I delivered. I solved the problem in two weeks. What are you complaining about? And there will be no backlash because the people who would be that backlash are his party and his supporters. Um, as long as he stays popular. It's a law of American politics, just as Tony Blair wrongly thought it was a law of British politics. Wars are popular at the beginning, sure. Troops are engaged. If wars don't produce success in one or two years, they become massively unpopular. If wars come from a prime minister, not parliament, a president, not Congress... It's the president who becomes unpopular. Trump doesn't want that. His alternative negotiated peace, stalemated war, I think I know which he's going to pick, unless he has some secret up his sleeve that can give him victory without compromise in two weeks, without blowing up the world. Um, okay, uh, his differentiation from Obama on Israel... And Hillary Clinton shared this differentiation, which said, we don't want to make Benjamin Netanyahu unhappy. We want him to be happy. Uh, means, essentially, the U.S. is out of the two-state solution game, which may be a game that's over anyway. It will not be a factor in U.S. politics. That taking off human rights, international pressure, two-state solution pressure will be appreciated by the right-wing Israeli governments, which will create some negotiating space that might sell a Syria deal that left Assad in power in some traditional kind of thing. The Israelis have always sort of liked the Assad family, said they kept their promises, didn't violate their borders specifically after 73. The Saudis, I think um, it won't be good to be a member of the Saudi royal family under a Trump administration. 
I think he doesn't like them. I think he's not afraid of them. I think he thinks he can score points by pushing them around, enabling lawsuits for terrorism and uh, other things like that. It's just I'm obviously can only speculate on that. Uh, we, we've we've left only half the world to go, and I want to do it in five minutes. South Asia, Asia. South Asia, and East Asia. All right, South Asia is fast. India up, Pakistan down. Simple as that. Doesn't like Pakistan. Is on to their game in Afghanistan, um, and Pakistan down means India up anyway. But his basic notion of subcontracting the U.S. making strategic choices and leaving the ones in the second tier to regional powers. India, Japan are the obvious region, South Korea are the regional, obvious regional designates in the region. So for both global strategic reasons, vis-a-vis China, India is up. And for South Asian reasons, vis-a-vis Pakistan, India is up. And besides, they need a lot of hotels and whatever. Um, Okay, that's South Asia, East Asia. Very complicated, very important. Could be where World War III starts. If I had to pick one area, East Asia. Um, China. China will not be happy with the 30% tariff slapped on Chinese goods out of the blue, obviously. Um, China is, the Chinese leadership for seven, eight, nine years, certainly since the crash and even before, has understood it needs to strategically move its development model from an export-dependent one to a more domestic consumption model. It's been doing that, all right? But it's very hard to let go of the addiction of the export model, which has been working so well for them. Um, Their main concern is domestic. Their main concern is to keep people employed, all right? They've curbed population growth, growth, but they're in a stage of development where People are less and less economically needed on the land. They're going to come into the cities. They have a control system to retard that. There are political costs for all such controls. There are political costs for people not having work. People will have work through the export model. The consumer model will have time to click in. They have unfortunately, we could be talking about China, have chosen an industrial development model, which is capital intensive, not labor intensive, which means they have to grow twice as fast to generate full employment as they would have with a different development model. For various internal political reasons, they're not thinking of shifting that. They're shifting to the consumption model. What are they going to do if Trump and the Republican Congress put on a 30% investment tariff? Well, what they're going to do is they're going to sell a lot of U.S. Treasury bonds, raising the interest rate in the United States, just to send a friendly message that meeting your political needs is going to have political costs for you. So just don't think you're the only player in this game. How far they're going to go with that depends on the interaction and the U.S. reaction to that. Okay. China. China is also going to see that the America First model is a green light in the South China Sea and East China Sea. It's not totally a bad thing in that the flashing red light that Obama was putting up was pretty unrealistic too that in broad international conflict theory here, you have a rising power um, which had been told that you're locked behind the first island chain. You're locked on the mainland because of a decision you took in the Ming dynasty not to have a strategic navy and play that game because of 
European and North American imperialism in the 19th and early 20th century, those lines are frozen. If you challenge them, their aggression, we will stop you with the U.S. Navy. Not a very sustainable long-run policy, particularly for a country which can't get itself out of the Middle East, right? It's true they liberated naval forces. Still, if you get in a war with China, it's not just going to be a naval war, all right? So something's going to change, and I think that the new government of the Philippines signaled to us that countries in the region see that that wasn't sustainable also and something has to change. I'm not saying that China gets to be like America and say, oh, we have a Monroe Doctrine, nobody else gets to mess in this island chain, it's all ours. No, but space is opened by Trump's subcontracting to regional proxies, to his America First. China will move into that space the whole of the U.S.-Chinese relationship, economic, trade, strategic, military, will the, the Chinese can be pretty good bargainers. They know there are several baskets on the table, treasury bonds. Let's see how good Trump really is at the art of the deal when he doesn't have a ghostwriter writing the book for him. Okay, finishing up East Asia, North Korean nukes, well, they've got them. We didn't have a strategy to stop them, and we don't have a strategy to stop them. Trump's strategy is let Japan and South Korea develop its own nuclear weapons. You know what? They will. They will in that environment. And they both have the technical means and the resources for doing so. I'll stop there. Thank you very much. And that's the end of our show. Thank you for listening. You can find more information on soasradio.org or cisd.soas.ac.uk. 